there's a lot of good things happening at the community level. We're starting to see some good things also happen at the state, local, and even federal level, but it's not enough. It's good that we're getting started, but there's certainly more that needs to be done. They don't have any ties to any particular neighborhoods. You know, I work in my neighborhood because I grew up there. I have, I have, I have ties to it. Welcome to the Stylist Street Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Leibowitz. Today we have John Cortez with us. He's born and raised in Queens, New York, and manages volunteer tutoring programs in New York City jails, including Rikers Island. Thanks for coming on, John. Happy to be here, Brett. How you doing, man? Good. How you doing? I'm good, man. You know, just the grind, trying to make education more equitable, more accessible. We train volunteer tutors to support the academic achievement of incarcerated people. Really passionate about that because growing up in New York, you see some of the opportunities that are afforded to some people who are born in some zip codes versus the lack of educational opportunities in other zip codes. And a lot of times it's those people from those neighborhoods who end up incarcerated, unfortunately. Yeah, the rates are kind of crazy. Of More of your zip code depends of how you end up or if you end up in jail or not over any other kind of characteristic. Yeah, man. I mean, they've got blocks that are like million dollar blocks where just one street neighborhood, they're spending a million dollars on enforcement, on criminal enforcement. Neighborhoods like in East New York and the South Bronx. So, you know, it's really inequitable. You read about this stuff, but to actually go in and see it yourself is a completely different dynamic. That's enforcement alone, you say a million dollars a year? For just certain blocks, but in the aggregate, I mean, it's even crazier, man. Do you have any idea like how much it costs to incarcerate one person for one year? $209,000 in Rikers, is what <laughs> Wikipedia says. Yeah, yeah, so Wikipedia is pretty accurate. The figure I've seen most recently is about $217,000 per person per year, which to put that in perspective, the national average is around $50,000 depending on which stats you're looking at. To put it in even more perspective, we're talking about education, right? K through 12 education, that's about $12,000 a year to educate one student. So think about all the people we could be educating for the cost of incarcerating one person on Rikers. The national average and Rikers average. Why is it so different? Why is it from 50000 to over 200000 Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. A lot of people ask it. You know, one thing is Rikers is a huge complex 400 acres nearly, and it takes a lot to make that island run, and it has to run 24-7. You heard recently about the power outages in federal prisons where you know they went out without power, they went without heat during the extreme cold that we had recently. So it takes a lot of power, a lot of logistics, and a lot of money ultimately to keep an island as big as Rikers running that accommodates as many employees, as many staff, and houses as many incarcerated people as Rikers does. We're on Roseville Island here, so Rikers is up the East River, so I can imagine <laughs> the, the island scenario. Yeah, man. What type of tutoring does your organization do for people in jail? Is it high school diploma equivalents? Yeah, I'd say mostly high school diploma equivalents, which is called the task in New York. Do some pre-college, some also some college level classes, literacy, English as a second or other language. It's a pretty wide range of tutoring. Really, wherever there's a need, we try to meet that need. And how many, maybe what percent of jails are you guys in in New York City? There are... I think 11 active jails right now. And the reason why I have to say I think is because GMDC closed recently and JATC, which is one of the 10 jails on Rikers, has been closed since 2000. There are three other jails in the boroughs. 
you know, we kind of cycle in and out of some of the jails on Rikers, and we've got a program in one of those borough jails as well. So we've been in quite a few of the jails, and, you know, it just kind of depends, like I said, based on where the need is at. Something I was looking up that surprised me is on Rikers Island, 85% of the people aren't actually admitted to the prison. They're just pre-trial. One, I want to hear your opinion on that. And two, do they have access to the education that you guys are providing? Innocent until proven guilty. That's what I have to say about the 85%. We're presuming innocence until people are proven guilty, yet we're locking them up and there's no functional distinction between detainees and incarcerated people. It's really undemocratic to just take away people's liberty that way. Ultimately, we're incarcerating poverty because a lot of these people, they can't afford bail. And that's why they're there. And that's also why the composition of people on Rikers is overwhelmingly an ethnic minority, black and Hispanic, over 80%. Depending on which stats you look, it could be over 90%. It's hard to tell at any given time because the population is so transient. It's constantly changing. But you know, anywhere between 80-90% of people there are black and Hispanic. It's really awful. And, and you know, you're talking about 85% of people there are there and they're not sentenced. They're awaiting trial. Out of those 85%, 95% of them are going to end up pleading. They're going to cop a plea and they're not even going to go to court. They're going to get run down by the system. They're going to be awaiting trial and they're going to accept one of the offers. And that's pretty much how the system works. It's unfortunate, but it is a reality. And, you know, in terms of access to programs, I would say the detainees, the pretrial folks, they have just about as much access as incarcerated people do on Rikers. Of course, there are some exceptions to that. And, you know, in terms of legally what the city and state are required to do, there are certain more stringent requirements for people who have been sentenced regarding education and also working than there are for pretrial folks. But, I would say at Rikers, that's not really the determinant of whether or not you're having access to education or whether or not you're having access to programming. How many people or percentage are juveniles and how does that affect education if you're in high school and you're detained for three months, let's say? Yeah, so I'd say most of the programs are geared towards the young adults, which before used to include the 16 and 17 year olds, before raised the age legislation, which went into effect in October of 2018. New York was one of two states, North Carolina being the other state, that incarcerated 16 and 17 year olds as adults. Now, you know, they still start out in adult court, but they get diverted either to family court or the youth part, depending on the charge. So the 16 and 17 year olds, by law, they were required to go to school. The 18 and 21 year olds could opt in. Overall, the school on Rikers, I believe, was serving about 400 individuals, give or take. So, you know, roughly out of how many young adults there were, about 400 of them were going to school. There were a few more certainly accessing programs, but that would be the figure in terms of education before raise the age legislation. Interesting. So I didn't realize they had schools within the prison for the situation for people who would be in high school if they weren't in jail. Yeah. I mean, you know, they don't look like schools, but they are schools. I mean, some of them are a little bit nicer looking than others. There are Department of Education teachers who are working tirelessly. They're working very hard to support the academic achievement of some of these incarcerated students. But the challenge is real. You've got a very transient population. 
You've got very limited resources. You don't have much information on the students who are coming in. A lot of them have IEPs or individual education plans or they're not diagnosed as requiring some sort of special education, the staff is burdened and it's very challenging for them to meet that need. I'm sure it's difficult to, like, what's the restrictions on internet access while incarcerated? There is none. You're at a huge disadvantage in school if you don't have the internet, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the functions that our volunteers play is we are a resource to the outside. We can look these things up and come in and share what we learn and exchange ideas based on some of the questions that we get posed to us that, you know, we may not be equipped to answer it in the moment, but we go back and we'll look into it and then bring that into the next discussion and into the next session to have a conversation about it. Stuff I'm thinking about is our prison system in the U.S. is the highest percent of incarcerated people in the world, the rate, how the state is now, it's not that great, right? It costs insane amount of money. We're saying over $200,000 at Rikers per person per year costs billions of dollars like to enforce, to throw people in jail. One, like what's the breakdown of people in these jails? What were their crimes? How are we officially spending the money? How are we improving as a government, as a society? Yeah, I mean, there there have been a lot of decarceration efforts lately. Our incarceration rate has gone down, which is a good thing. You know, the composition is still, you know, it's mostly violent offenders, over a million. Part of that is because of the way the statutes are written. Part of that is there's a severe mental health problem that's not being addressed in certain inner cities. I mean, you can make the argument across the country there's a mental health problem that's not being addressed, but certainly in inner cities, there's a lot of trauma. There's been divestment and huge lack of resources, a lack of schools, a lack of quality after school programs, arts programs. And as a result, people don't really have an outlet to turn to. There's also a lack of fatherhood in a lot of these communities. And that's kind of the tough thing because you can't really legislate on the family. You can't legislate, you know, how people raise children. You can legislate on schools, but that's not reaching these communities. So these communities are struggling, they're suffering. And unfortunately, you know, some of them, they do turn to violence as a result. And, you know, you can almost say that's a cry for help in a way. Of course, you want to maintain public safety. I mean, there are some people who definitely commit some real heinous crimes. And, you know, that's not who I'm talking about here. And that's not you know, a million people commit a violent crime because of the way the statutes are written or because, you know, certain circumstances present themselves in a certain way, that doesn't mean those million people are inherently bad. And that doesn't mean that it's a public safety concern if we were to have these people, you know, out in the society, in the community. It's a complex issue. Of course, you've got the drug offenses, which federally, that's really the big problem. Federally, about half of the prison population is there on a drug charge. I think overall it's around 20%, a little bit less than 20%, but it was definitely a big driver of mass incarceration in the 80s. Yeah, that's crazy. Half federally. So like nonviolent drug offenses is what half of the current federal incarceration is? Yeah, yeah, about 90,000 people. What are your thoughts on the first step back? How much of a step is it for the first step and where do you see it going in the future? I mean, look, we'll, we'll take any win we could get. And the First Step Act is definitely a win. So, so what the First Step Act does is it makes a Smarter Sentencing Act apply retroactively. What's a Smarter Sentencing Act? Well, that's an act that amends the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. What's that law? 
that law was a law that made it equivalently illegal to have one gram of crack as an individual with a hundred grams of cocaine. So if I have one gram of crack and you have a hundred grams of cocaine, even though molecularly they're the same drug, we're going to jail for the same amount of time. We're going to prison for the same amount of time, same charge. You think about the motives behind that. I mean, at the time, who had access to crack? It was black people, Hispanic people who had access to cocaine, who was able to afford cocaine, white people and more affluent people in general. The Smarter Sentencing Act of 2010 reduced that ratio down to instead of 100 to 1 to 18 to 1, which, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's laughable because it's still a huge disparity. But, you know, again, it's an improvement. We'll take the win. Obviously, we want it to be more equitable than that. You know, actually, I've been mixing up my terminology. I just realized now. So it was the Fair Sentencing Act that I've been talking about. The Smarter Sentencing Act was an act that didn't pass. That's the act that would have applied the Fair Sentencing Act retroactively. That's the act that would have made the 18 to 1 ratio apply to anyone who had been sentenced previously. So pretty much with the Fair Sentencing Act coming into play in 2010, anyone who's arrested after that point, it's the 18 to 1 ratio rather than the 100 to 1 ratio. So if you're arrested before 2010, you're shit out of luck. I think the first step back, though, does retroactively apply. Yes. So and it, it yes. took what the Smart Sensing Act, part of what it was trying to do, exactly. and that initiated the first step back. Exactly. And so that's what the first step back did, which is great. You know, it's a little late, but at least we got it passed. Based on the figures that I looked at, it should apply to about 9,000 people who will get shorter sentences as a result of that. That's still a very small amount out of the 180,000 people who are in federal prisons out of the 90 plus thousand people there for some sort of drug offense. But it's a step nonetheless. You know, now the other sort of thing that it does, I mean, it also provides some additional funds for rehabilitation programs, as I understand it. It also eases mandatory minimums a bit. When I say a bit, I really mean a bit. The third strike for a nonviolent drug offense, instead of being life, a life term in prison, it's 25 years. Yeah, that's something that surprised me because I went through the list of what it does, the First Step Act. Third strike is life to 25 years, and the second sentence is 15 years mandatory instead of 25. Put someone in Rikers for, let's say, 15 years instead of 25 years, it's millions of dollars being yeah. spent to keep this person there for getting caught twice with drugs federally. Fortunately, these people aren't being incarcerated at Rikers because that's the local system. They're being incarcerated in places like MDC, Brooklyn, a federal prison, or actually rather that that's a federal detention center. So it would be at MCC, which is in Manhattan. That's where El Chapo is actually. Because the federal system, while still expensive, while still too expensive, isn't as egregiously expensive as Rikers. So fortunately, they're not spending that much time in Rikers. It's outrageous. It's too much time. Really unfortunate. There's there's a huge loss in human and social capital that's transpiring as a result of the war on drugs and its progeny. Right. Yeah. You spend $50,000 a year on a person to keep them incarcerated. When they get out, they can't get a job. <laughs> they could be more educated, more connected to get more jobs, which gets more tax revenue for the people. It just seems we have it kind of flipped on how we allocate our money and how to maximize not only like social good, but monetary good as well. Absolutely. And I think that's where the bipartisan argument is. 
where, you know, you can appeal to a lot of people using the human rights sort of angle. And I think you can appeal to the other people using the money angle. It's a shame. There's no such thing as time served in this country because that time stays with you. Taking it a more local level, we're talking about drug sentencing. Something that's going on is kind of a big shift in American thought, American policy on drug legalization, specifically cannabis legalization. New York, New Jersey, both two big states that are trying to legalize according to their governors and this year at least have the legislation out there. New York definitely needs it. We need more money. With the new uh, tax plan that was passed federally, we no longer have write-offs. Individuals like me and you, we can't write off state taxes on our tax return. So, you know, we're being overburdened by state taxes, but the state can't afford to cut our taxes because there's so many things that we need to be spending money on, like the MTA. It's failing. It's falling apart. It's going to take a lot of money to fund that. There are schools that are underfunded. There are a lot of places where this money could be put to use. I think it's a good thing from that perspective. It's interesting because we talk about the racial aspects of criminal justice and a big motive for criminalizing marijuana in the first place was actually criminalizing race. Cannabis used to be referred to as cannabis widely in the U.S., and it became referred to as marijuana due to this campaign by Anslinger, who is uh, the first head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He went on this campaign to associate cannabis, marijuana, with Mexicans and with an anti- Mexican sentiment that was going on at the time and in many ways still goes on today. The ban on marijuana started as a criminalization of race. And we see through the war on drugs, it's continued as a criminalization of race. So I I think it's a good thing for it to be legalized. We have too many people who are incarcerated for drug offenses. I think we'll get some good tax revenue that could be well spent and reinvested in these communities that are suffering, reinvested in art programs and after school programs and better schools, better jobs, job training. I think it's a great idea. And I would go one step further and say that we should seriously consider giving people private licenses to be able to sell marijuana privately as a job, because a lot of these communities, they they don't have economic opportunities. So you have people dealing drugs because they can't get a job. So why don't we bring them into the fold, have them pay taxes, have them pay some licensing fees. That way we can have some regulation over the market, get some money over the market, and you have these people who who can prosper and, and make a living in a legal way as opposed to going to the secondary market to do so. Yeah, there's a huge dichotomy with it where people of color, poor communities have been thrown in jail for years and years with these mandatory sentences for decades per person. And then states are legalizing, federal government's still not recognizing it as a legal substance, even within those states that have legalized, which is a huge percent of the American population live in these legal states. You have all these people in jail. One of the great things, I think, about the First Step Act and what certain states are doing in general about reducing time and what New York is looking at, what San Francisco is looking at for just automatically expunging records. So anyone who was 
incarcerated because of a drug offense, even if they're out now, it's difficult for them to get jobs because they have arrest on their record. And it's for something that's now is completely legal. To be able to get that completely expunged off the record, employers can't ask about, they're allowed to say they've never been arrested. It would be huge for yeah, personal growth, economic growth, social growth. And then on top of that, yeah, all the money that's being saved. But to the point of that is that people who didn't go to jail for all these things are now like, oh, we can make money off of this. It's not giving the opportunity back to the people that these laws have harmed the most since it's been flipped. What can you say other than the people who have influence, who are able to afford lobbyists, who are able to afford lawyers, who can work things out, are the ones who are benefiting and profiting. Meanwhile, the people who are born in certain circumstances, completely arbitrarily, it's not like a person chooses to be born one way or another in certain circumstances or another, for that to be such a determining factor in people's livelihood, it's unjust. And yeah, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely right. You've got people making a killing off this industry, this budding legalization industry, pun not intended, but you can certainly take it that way. (laughs) You know, you've got people making a killing off this stuff and other people are spending the bulk of their lives behind bars for it. Yeah, even after laws have been changed, which is crazy. I'm happy there's some movement toward that. Yeah, some stuff I wanted to talk about. You sent me an article by Michelle Alexander, the person who wrote the new Jim Crow laws, about how we're moving toward this new type of incarceration. She might call it something like the new, new Jim Crow. Electronic incarceration. Ecarceration is the term that was given. I just think that's super interesting how we're now using technology, which is fairly unregulated because it's so new into the lives of people being incarcerated. The idea is we're starting to see an increase in the use of electric monitoring systems, usually ankle bracelets, either GPS or house arrest bracelets, starting to see an increase in the use of that. While some people may think that's a good thing, and in a way it is because it does support decarceration efforts, we need to be a little bit more mindful of the over-reliance on these electric monitors and the efficacy of it. Specifically, the costs are being diverted away from the state to these poor communities that are already over-policed and overburdened by the toll of the criminal justice system. So rather than me and you picking up the bill with our taxpaying dollars, the person who gets locked up, they have to pay for their own GPS bracelet or house arrest bracelet. Some people may be, may be like, hey, that's great. You know, I don't want to pay for this person's, you know, arrest and, and this person's detainment. I get that, but the solution shouldn't be, okay, let's make them pay for it now. The solution should be, let's set up a system where we can have fewer people committing crimes and that we can have a better, more restorative, more rehabilitative response to that. Why do you think it is that now that people have to pay for their own incarceration in my head it's the same thing whether you're in jail or you're at home it's still like a government-sponsored thing that you have to do why do you think the switch to the incarcerated being the ones to pay for it yeah i'm not sure i mean it's it's baffling really i i I suspect that it has to do with the fact that it's private entities who are creating these monitors and so the contract doesn't stipulate that the state has to pick up the fee. And in a way, it's seen as a benefit for the person who would be incarcerated because it's like, hey, look, you don't have to spend time behind bars. You can be in the comfort of your own home and community. But really, then you just become a prisoner 
in your own home or in your own community. You know, and on top of that, you have this constant surveillance going on, this concept of big brothers watching. In this case, big brother is literally always watching. In my head, yeah, it is better that you're at home with your family and stuff. You can't necessarily leave home. You can't go to work. You can't like do a lot. But I would imagine it's better than being in jail for that time. But at the same time, yeah, what to be wary of is kind of authoritarian state getting more and more access to your whereabouts, what you're doing. Not even the state, but third-party entities. It's not that the use of electric monitoring systems, e-carceration, is inherently bad. It could be done... With more efficacy, perhaps, the first big step in that is not diverting the costs away from the state to the individuals who are being punished. You know, it shouldn't just be snapping a bracelet on someone and saying, okay, that's it, I'll see you in a month for your next court date. There needs to be more significant interventions that are taking place if we're really trying to to help the person. And there need to be programs for people who are coming out of these situations. There need to be certain limitations on the sort of information that's being gathered and collected by these bracelets. And there also needs to be certain limitations of use. You know, it shouldn't become we're going to decarcerate actual jails and prisons and just now a bunch of people are going to be stuck in their in their neighborhoods or in their homes, neighborhoods and homes that are already burdened. We need to take a closer look at this. And, you know, I would say that's true with many things is we have these ideas of how we can make improvements. And we don't really realize the collateral effects, the collateral consequences that take place as a result of these innovative ideas that could really end up causing more harm than good. We have to think about how we use these technologies, how we apply them and do it in the right way. Something we talked about before in a different context is like data privacy. So storage of data on the blockchain that only you can give access to to certain people. So these third-party companies, it's so new, and the government's not really tech-savvy. Private entities that you rent the bracelets from can sell your private data, location data, what you're doing without your consent, which things like GDPR in Europe and an act in California recently are trying to protect people's data privacy. You're paying to have them give access to your home. And the other concern I saw with this is that now it gives an excuse for police kind of to monitor your family and your surroundings so they can come anytime to check what you're doing and it gives them access to your home where other people live it's not just you in there so it's kind of gives more power under the guise of these good intentions which are definitely positives in it but it has to be kind of regulated and thought about in the proper way to be properly implemented that's right because now you have people who are not directly being punished. Now they're indirectly being punished. Your cousin that you room with or your friend that you go to work with or to church with, these people aren't being surveilled. At least they're not supposed to be, but indirectly they are because you've got a person who has this ankle monitor on and now they're hanging out with these people. And so now the police know what everyone's doing. They know where everyone's at. They can drop by at any moment. So that's definitely a big problem. And of course, there's the power dynamic at play. When you have people who are checking in on you, who have the power to put you away, to lock you up again, it creates a a perverse sort of dynamic where as the person being monitored, you're not really trusting of that individual. So how can you really rely on that person to try to help you, to try to support you in this uh, difficult time of your life where you're trying to, you know, make better decisions 
there are a lot of things that need to be rethought about this whole system. We pretty much have a system where you can enter the criminal justice sphere. We don't have a system where you can exit. And that's why we have this revolving door. People look at probation and parole as you know a mechanism of exit, but it's the same thing. It's just surveilling you for however long you're on probation or parole. You've got five years in, five years out. Well, those five years out, you've got all sorts of meetings and qualifications that you need to make. Your parole officer is constantly changing. A lot of it is contingent on the relationship you have with the individual. During those five years, even though you're technically out of society, you're still being surveilled, you're still being monitored, and any sort of slip up could end up with you locked up again. So we really need to think about reentry and how we conceive of it. That's a big issue. And of course, more broadly, we need to make improvements with the criminal justice system the way it is in terms of people coming into it. There are a lot of studies that show that there was a shift away from rehabilitation in the 70s to being more punitive. I think we're starting to see a bit of a reversion back to being more rehabilitative, particularly with the community. The communities have really risen up and responded to mass incarceration and are now rigorously advocating for better conditions and are going out there and volunteering, are going out and creating help groups, support groups, midnight gatherings as alternatives to activities people may be doing at midnight instead. There's a lot of good things happening at the community level. We're starting to see some good things also happen at the state, local, and even federal level, but it's not enough. It's good that we're getting started, but there's certainly more that needs to be done. I would say it probably wouldn't push the other levels, state, local, federal, if it wasn't started at the community, right? You need some sort of push because other players have other interest in it, so they have no interest in changing these laws because some people may make a profit or have job security or whatever it is based off of that. It takes society reimagining what these systems ought to look like, how we ought to treat people. If you're saying a person does something wrong, something harmful, and you're sending them away for a while, democratically, if we're being true to democratic ideals, that person's coming back to society at some point. So do we really want to just punish that person, lock them up, put them up in some dungeon and, and not work with them at all, not, not try to address some of their circumstances, try to address some of the trauma, the mental health issues that the individual may or may not be uh, suffering from? Don't we want to do that rather than than just ignore the problem, have the person come out and continue to uh, you know behave in a way that society deems unfit? Right, and allocate the money in a certain way more toward rehabilitation as opposed to just punishment. Because then they come back out, revolving doors. There's data behind this that this is just how it works. It's not like we're guessing at it. I mean, there's a lot of research on this stuff. There have been a lot of books written. I think more and more people are starting to recognize this, which is good. We are starting to reimagine what a criminal justice system ought to look like. And, you know, we're starting to implement those things. I mean, it's happening slowly. I would wish for it to happen more quickly, but I am happy to see at least that the tide does seem to be turning in the right direction. Circling back to decarceration and bail is another point I wanted to talk about in there. Interesting part of AI is it's based off of data sets. There's inherent bias in these data sets for how certain outcomes are happening. So to train this artificial intelligence, it needs a bunch of data and it decides what future outcomes should be when it sees another data point. So a huge issue 
especially if there's not regulation and this being heavily thought about, which it should be in a lot of different areas as we move on and as AI gets more prevalent, is how do you decide who gets incarcerated, especially with neural networks, throw a bunch of linear algebra at a bunch of data and you get an outcome. There's hidden layers, there's a bunch of connections going on. Some of the time, certain demographics are affected in a much more negative way than other demographics. So on that point, you've got California, they recently ended cash bail, which is fantastic because cash bail is one of those things that targets low-income people. I mean, if low-income communities are being over-policed, they're getting locked up, they don't have money to make bail, we're incarcerating poverty, especially if we're presuming innocence until proven guilty. What they're doing now is they're creating risk assessments to see if someone poses a a flight risk, meaning they're not going to show up to court. They're using algorithms to determine that. And so like you said, these algorithms carry over the implicit biases that either the developer has or that are also kind of a result of data points. If we recognize that there are racially disparate outcomes in the data on arrests, on incarceration, on all of these things is racially disparate, then of course the algorithm is going to have a black person be a higher risk score than a white person for the same exact crime because the data doesn't lie. And so you have people pointing to the objective algorithm, but the objective algorithm is is based on racist data. Right. And just looking at, again, legalization, because it ties in so nicely to a lot of these topics, Yeah, that people of color, people of poor communities are arrested eight to 12 times more than affluent white people, right? So just because they're policed more, they're arrested more for the same crime, same rates of drug use among populations. It's inherent that the policing is biased, so that means more people arrested, so that means they're more of a flight risk, that means that you're either not going to get any sort of bail or you're going to be incarcerated while people of different demographics with the same probably actual flight risk go home and wait for their trial. Exactly, exactly. And it takes a lot because here you have good-minded people, well-intentioned people trying to implement a good solution. And there are all these sort of consequences that could take play. And part of that is we have this concept of procedural fairness that if we have a procedure... And the procedure is fair, and the, the outcomes are fair, and the procedure is followed, then the whole thing is fair. With these algorithms, it's procedural fairness on steroids, because how more, quote-unquote, fair can you get than following a computer algorithm? It has the illusion of objectivity. There's all this context that isn't being taken into consideration, and we've discussed what this context is, but ultimately it's rooted in the fact that the data is based on years and years of years of criminalization of race, of racially disparate outcomes due to so many factors. Yeah, it takes the responsibility off of the people too, right? You're saying you're looking at the algorithms that the computer says this, it's made by scientists and researchers and so much data that it must be right. No one really knows how do we update the algorithms to change it. You just have to create another model and hope that works better. So it's this step-by-step improvement that people have to want, number one, and have to believe that there's problems with it. Yeah, I mean, it's Pontius Pilate washing his hands. Brian Stevenson actually talks about this. We try to remove ourselves from proximity 
to the criminal justice system in order to not have to think about it, to not be culpable for it. And so to really be a part of the solution, you need to be close to the problem. And when you're dealing with these broken systems, in a way, it breaks you. To bring it back to algorithms and procedural fairness, one of the first attempts at this was with sentencing grids. So initially, sentencing grids seemed like a great idea because you had some racist judges locking black people up for the same crime as a white person. They were in the same cell in some instances, and they have completely different sentences. Sentencing grids kind of came out of that movement, but the effect that it had was tying judges' hands. And in a way, that's good because you wanted to tie the hands of racist judges so that they can treat people equally and fairly. But, you know, if you have a judge who's maybe sympathetic to an individual's circumstances, they can't factor that into their sentencing decision. It's no surprise that part of this decarceration effort at the federal level is to roll back mandatory minimum legislation. And even with the mandatory maximum of a life term, rolling that back to 25 years, it's laughable because 25 years is a lifetime. There are people who've already been there for longer than that. So now by applying the law retroactively, they're eligible for release, eligible for parole. That has the effect of decarcerating. If we look to when these movements were first instituted, that had the impact of fueling mass incarceration because you just have more people locked up for longer periods of time. What type of support is there for people in general or with these retroactive laws applied, say they're in jail for 20 years of a 25-year sentence, what support is there for them for when they get out? A lot of that is contingent on the locality, the state. California did a great job with propositions, I believe 36 and 47. I believe those were the two propositions that were passed after they were mandated by the Supreme Court to lower their prison population from over 212% to 137.5% capacity. How are you above 100% capacity? What does that mean? Recreational spaces or gyms or you know health clinics in prisons that all of a sudden have a bunch of beds. And those beds are supposed to be temporary, except those beds don't leave. And part of this is the lack of coordination between the people who are making the arrests, the people who are prosecuting, the people who are sentencing, and the wardens. There's not sufficient coordination. So that's how that happens. The Supreme Court had to step in and say, hey, this is an abuse of the Eighth Amendment. It's cruel and unusual punishment because they don't have access to the programs and, and rehabilitation that they ought to have access to. So they were mandated to bring it down. Now, it's 100% capacity, 137.5% capacity. So apparently being 37.5% over capacity is constitutional. California was able to release quite a number of people, and they actually drove the first decline in our national trends of incarceration. They drove that decline with those propositions and and a couple other initiatives as well. What those initiatives were is they were geared towards uh, something similar to what First Step is doing to addressing their three strikes law, particularly with uh, nonviolent crimes and for applying that retroactively. That's what those propositions did. First year of the people being released recidivism rates were super low. I mean, like under 5%. Wow. 
There was a lot of community investment and government investing in reentry programs, in coordinating services. So California could, you know, really be a good model in how they were able to bring their their incarcerated population down from being over 200% to, to being 137.5%. Uh, so, you know, even though we're talking about the dangers of ending cash-based bail and relying on algorithms to create risk assessments, even though we may be talking about that as a bad thing, that's not to say that everything California doing is wrong. They've been pretty successful in some reentry efforts and lowering recidivism and giving people their lives back, giving these people opportunities. Yeah, something I'm thinking about is you're saying they're 200% capacity, 85% of people at Rikers are pre-trial, so they're just funneling people into the system. They don't have anywhere to put them. Courts, I imagine, are backed up because they have so many people, so it just makes the problem worse. The picture that you're painting here is what's going on. I mean, in the 90s, at the height of the prison population boom, Rikers had around 20,000 people, even though the capacity is only 15,000. So, you know, you literally had these beds in gyms and places that there didn't need to be beds. There shouldn't have been beds. You know, that's been happening across the country. And, you know, now we're starting to see prison population trends go down, which is great. But, you know, it's going down from an overbloated system, this this system of mass incarceration that literally incarcerated more people than Russia and, and South Africa. Yeah. And all that the taxpayer's dollar. <laughs> all at our dime, all at our expense, nonetheless. I kind of want to switch topics. Do you have any good resources for people of what to read if they want more stuff? I think we went through a lot of information, but I bet there's so much info on this. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of information, of course. Um, uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow is a great place to start. Tanasi Coates, Between the World and Me. Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy. James Foreman has a, a sort of nuanced perspective on uh, mass incarceration that's called uh, Locking Up Our Own. And for a sort of other nuanced perspective, uh, I would read uh, Naomi Murakawa's first civil right. A lot of reading material. Great. So before I ask that, we're talking about expensive taxpayers' dollars. Something I want to get your perspective on. You're from Queens. Amazon coming to New York City, coming to Long Island City. But then pulling out, what's your opinion on the situation, backstory of it? Uh, what do you think about it? Yeah, man. I mean, uh, Long Island City is the most expensive neighborhood in Queens. Going around the neighborhood, I'm just like, all right, when's the gentrification finally going to kick in? When's it going to happen? I've been kind of looking at the calendar, l- walking around the community. And, you, you know, a- anyone who's, who's from around the area is expecting it to happen. But when you have an entity like Amazon come in, you're just like, all right, that, that's like putting a catalyst in the reaction. I mean, exponential amount of gentrification that would ensue from something like that, potential displacement. Uh, is really concerning uh, for a lot of people from the community. And so I think that was why you had a lot of opposition from from people in Queens. Though, you know, if you look at some of the polls, um, it's not reflected in the polls. But a lot of these polls are flawed. They're small sample sizes. Uh, they're, they're asking people who aren't even from Queens. They're asking people from the state. You know, a lot of the polls I saw that were reported were were pretty flawed. That's not to say that I'm, you know, I'm not biased because I'm not, you know, in my sort of circles. 
But, you know, I, I think there was a lot more opposition than some of those polls said. And, and, and the opposition was rooted in sort of throwing a catalyst into the reaction of gentrification in, in already the most expensive neighborhood in Queens. Yeah, that makes sense. I definitely see two sides and pros and cons to Amazon coming. One, I'm in Cornell Tech, Tech Campus, right across the river, literally one ferry stop away is Long Island City. But I do see how, like, much nicer Long Island City is. Right when you get into the ferry stop, there's three, like, beautiful kind of glass mirrored buildings that you don't really see anywhere else besides right there in Queens. So you get, like, the argument of bringing a lot of jobs into New York, tens of thousands of jobs. And all the tax revenue based off of people paying off their paychecks for the tax revenue. I know Amazon gets a tax break, but they eventually will bring more revenue to the city. But there's also the influx of population and then also people living there. The possibility of gentrification and them getting kicked out of their homes, which looks like it's moving toward that direction anyways. I have very little understanding, but I know that like New York has pretty good rent control laws. What are they and like how is that impact what would have happened if Amazon came. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that there are a lot of loopholes around those rent control laws. You know, just to address like the broader point of tax revenue and, you know, the jobs coming in, really, it's you got to think about it. Who are those jobs for? There there was a certain certain agreements about, oh, we're going to do some job readiness training. There are no agreements about actually hiring women, about hiring ethnic minorities, about hiring people from New York, uh, people from the community. So there are no agreements there. You've got $3 billion in tax subsidies given almost immediately for you know a projected return of $27.5 billion across 25 years. I mean, that is a lot of money, but it doesn't take into account the other costs and expenses associated with having Amazon there. And really, do we need to be given $3 billion to the wealthiest man in the world when we've got a a failing MTA system? And about that failing MTA system, how would that do with an influx of of 25,000 people? I know they wouldn't all come at once, but the system is already burdened, overburdened as it is. Anyone who takes a, a mass transit at rush hour in the morning, people are literally packed to the brim in these trains. You've got employees having to, MTA employees having to yell at people. There's a train coming, there's a train coming. But all the trains are packed like this for an hour and a half, two hours at the top end and and bottom end of the workday. So, you know, I I think that's a lot of the concern. And people see what happened in Williamsburg. I mean, in, in Williamsburg, they completely ignored the city's intention, the community's intentions for the urban plan that they wanted. And they just caved to real estate developers, rezoned it. Now you've got rents that have increased since before the rezoning, uh, about 300% almost. Only 16% of the more than 9,000 new housing units built were income targeted as of January, 2016. Income targeted is like what you're talking about, like rent controlled, only 16%. They promised a third. And this was for a 2005 zoning plan. So 11 years later, only 16% of those are rent controlled. And if we're talking about putting some price controls, which New York does have them, it's just there, there are loopholes around these things. And you know, part of that is how do we count area median income? So the whole talk of affordable houses, affordable houses, it's, it's a great political term because it, it says affordable, it says houses, people need affordable houses. Great, we've got them. Uh, the thing is, is that these affordable houses uh, count the median incomes of two of the wealthiest 
counties in the country that happen to be in New York greater metro area. And it also counts Westchester. So we're counting Putnam, Rockland, and Westchester counties. Even though none of these developments, none of these affordable houses are being built there, we're counting that in area median income. And that's what's used to determine uh, affordable housing. So they'll say, oh, you know, we're going to create X number of units at 60% AMI. Well, 60% AMI still ends up being twice what people from the community are making, so it doesn't help them. You've also got all these eligibility requirements that a lot of people from the community can't meet. You know, there are laws there, but again, the laws are crafted and written in a way that disadvantages some and favors others. And I think people see what happened at Williamsburg. People see what's happening all over Brooklyn, all over Manhattan. And then they see an entity like Amazon come in, potentially coming in. I mean, they're not, they're not coming in anymore, but there's the potential for it. And they get scared. They get alarmed. You know, we've got 60,000 people homeless in the streets or in shelters. A lot of that is due to the displacement that happened with these rezonings in Williamsburg and the Barclays Center, you know, all over the city. I think there's always two sides when there's gentrification happening, where there's a growth coming to a city, but it pushes people out. So there's like a positive and then a negative that comes along with it. Do you see a way or some metrics in order to coalesce those two together so you could have growth without kicking out the people who are there? Yeah, I mean, it's tough when you have limited space, right? Limited resources. Everyone wants to come to New York. I think a lot of it is that there's this premise that more housing will drive housing costs down. And that's just not the case. We continue to develop and rent continues to go up. Housing costs continue to go up. That's a big part of the problem. But at the same time, if we want to attract more people, integrate more people into the city and have more more revenue coming in, more capital coming in, which, yeah, those are desirable things. And having nice, shiny buildings and, and cool hipster bars, those are definitely positive externalities. Uh, what we want to avoid is displacing people. We, we want to avoid displacing people who are born and raised in this community. We want to avoid stripping our city from its culture, from its heritage, which has always been uh, centered around ethnic diversity. Um, so, you know, it's a really challenging problem to, to tackle in that. How do you how do you balance these two things? I don't really know that that I have an answer. It's something that I'm starting to think more about. You know, I don't think people coming in in and of itself is bad. We just need to make sure that there are more protections in place for people already here. Incentives for people who are from the community to, to stay in the community, to be able to work in the community, to be trained and retrained, to have some of these higher paying jobs that are coming in. And there need to be incentives for, um, you know, people who are coming into the city to invest in the community. A lot of the times you've got these high rises that have everything in them, everything. So this person doesn't have to go step outside of their high rise if they don't want to. They can just go home and chill and they, they've got everything they need there. You know, there, there needs to be incentives for these people to give back to the community for there to be more community uh, investment. And you can't have this hopping around from one neighborhood to the other because that's the other thing. People who aren't from New York, they'll just move around and hop around the city. They don't have any ties to any particular neighborhoods. You know, I work in my neighborhood because I grew up there. I have, I have, I have ties to it. We want to incentivize that. We want to incentivize more integration rather than just having people, uh, you know, in their own sort of silos segregated from each other. 
Yeah, it's very easy in New York to not leave your place. On Roosevelt Island, not really anything within walking distance even, maybe a half mile up island to get a simple bodega. So I got groceries delivered here. Seamless options aren't great, but it's seamless coming in. So there's definitely, if I wanted to, even here could just stay on island the whole time. I can imagine if you got a really nice apartment building, you got a gym in there, you got good groceries and delivery food options. Probably live right off the subway stop. So if you're going into Manhattan, get everything right there. Yeah, exactly, man. I mean, what's up with our bodegas? What's up with uh, our food carts? You know, getting some burritos or tacos or or chicken over rice. I oh, mean, guys. yeah, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I haven't looked into halal guys. I wonder if they've sold. You know, they, they've gone a bit commercial. And, and I, I'm yeah. telling you, the quality the quality is not what it used to be. But 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 yeah, man. Uh, you know, you're, you're you're losing culture as a result of it, and and that's something that we want to preserve. But best food cart in the city. I mean. I, I I would like give away exactly where I live if I were to say this. So I'm you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. I'm partial to a, a few areas. I would say any Chinatown in Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn. Those Chinatowns are amazing. I've been to China. Going is always a bit of a flashback for me, and and the food is fantastic. You know I kind of have a smell test. So if I just like walk around a cart and it smells good to me, I'll, I'll take note of it and I'll I'll hit it up at some point to try it. So, you know, that, that's what it's about, man, you know, like, like really, really getting that, that experience, investing in these people who are grinding. I mean, these cart workers, they're out there, they're in the cold, they're in the rain. Some of them are in the snow. I mean, they're out there working, they're grinding and their food is delicious. Please support your local cart food, support your local bodegas, support, you know, any of these uh, ethnic people around you who are, who are working hard and, and trying to provide some value, some services uh, to you. I think that's a good message. So something interesting with the whole Amazon situation coming to Long Island City is a lot of it, the politics of it. Right, it's the first thing that Cuomo and de Blasio agreed on, the mayor and the governor. But then you have the local side, like AOC and local politicians being against it for the community. So just all around the board, super interesting. It's the one thing that Cuomo and de Blasio seem to be able to agree on uh, is Amazon coming in. I mean, Cuomo's like, hey, you can call me Amazon Cuomo. So why are they agreeing to this? I mean, I guess it looks great economically, uh, like we were saying, though, there are certain costs and factors that aren't being that aren't being considered. The biggest problem, because, you know, I understand some people look at the numbers and they say, you've got all this money coming in. How can you object? And I say, well, you need to contextualize things. You need to look at what it's going to do to the communities. Look no further than Williamsburg. Look no further than Bushwick. Look no further than Harlem. All, all over all over the city, really, it's happening. You know, these aren't being factored into the cost-benefit analysis. But look, even ignoring the economics for a minute, what, what they were trying to do with Amazon coming into New York is wholly undemocratic. It's tyrannical almost. And, and I know that's strong language, but here, let, let, me, let me just explain. So they were trying to essentially circumvent the community process of reviewing and approving of developments like Amazon coming in. And instead, they were going through the state system, even though this is going to be happening in New York. This is going to be ha- happening in Queens. So we've got this, uh, this review process called the Uniform Land Use Review Process. 
And that's what every development has to go through in the city to be approved. And instead of going through that to allow for public debate and discourse for us to really have a rich conversation among the communities that are going to be most impacted by this, instead, we're going to go with the general project plan, the state's general project plan. And to me, that's not right. That's undemocratic. And that's my biggest problem with this whole talk of Amazon coming into LIC. Right. That seems what a lot of people were upset about. The fact that they didn't try as hard to really bring in the community with it. Do you think if there was more interaction between Amazon and the community that this thing would have stuck and people would have maybe found some common ground on it? I mean, it's tough to say because, look, uh, you know, the costs, uh, I mean, the viewings of homes went up 400 percent in Long Island City in November of 2018 relative to 2017. The or rather the searches went up 400 percent. The viewings went up 800 percent. Elementary schools, uh, the one elementary school in Long Island City is 135 percent capacity right now. It's at 100. Like the chills. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's over. It's overcrowded. You know, I, I think there are a lot of concerns. And again, the MTA is just a mess right now. So I think there there would be a lot of concerns regardless, just because of how we already saw the housing market uh, respond to an unofficial announcement, not even an official announcement, how the housing markets were responding to an unofficial announcement in already the most expensive neighborhood in Queens that is already has overcrowded schools. I think people would be concerned about that regardless, but it certainly didn't help that you were, weren't getting any community input. I think maybe you would have had some, some people on the fence about this who would have gone in Amazon's favor, uh, perhaps, potentially. But ultimately, look, this is a democracy, and we need to deliberate. We need to discuss things. We need to learn from each other, debate. These are important things, and this whole process just tried to ignore that. Yeah, I think that goes broadly to the ability to debate and discuss from housing, local levels, to government policies and laws, regulations, kind of goes into... The divisiveness in this country between the right and the left, right? That people aren't willing to even have a conversation with each other. What we're doing here, I wish more people w- would be doing this. Even even people who are diametrically opposed in their views or positions. I mean, you learn from each other through having conversations. And Amazon showed that they didn't want to learn about the neighborhood that they originally wanted to come to. And I think that's not right. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely want to have the conversation going, figure out what's best for everyone here and bring it all together. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, talking about everything Queens, New York City, criminal justice, Amazon legalization. Great having you on, John. Thanks for having me. You know that that's what it's about man you know like, like really really getting that that experience investing in these people who are grinding i mean these cart workers they're out there they're in the cold they're in the rain some of them are in the snow i mean they're out there working they're grinding and their food is delicious please support your local cart food support your local bodegas support you know any of these uh, ethnic people around you who are, who are working hard and, and trying to provide some value some services uh, to you.